0: Right, we're going to make a start, it's two o'clock. Thanks for joining us. I have to do it with a mic, I don't really need a mic, but uh, they are videoing this as well for other people who can't make it. So um, there is one rule, Um, please feel free to ask questions as frequently or anywhere in the presentation that you want. Um, We don't want people sitting here thinking, I wish I'd asked that, or I should have asked that a long time ago. So the idea is, please be interactive as possible. Um, but for the fact that they are actually videoing this and recording it, they need you to speak into a mic. Um, so when you do have a question, stick your hand up and we'll make sure that somebody brings you a mic as well. So um, so please just bear that in mind. My name is Peter Temple. Um, I am, for my sins, the principal examiner on the A302 communication exam. Um, I have been involved as principal examiner basically when we moved it to South Africa, um, so quite a few years. And Ryan is in the front here as well. He's going to co-present with me. He is one of the examiners, um, and I'll explain the process of how we set papers and how we mark them. Um, and Ryan has also been a marker for a few years, I guess, as well. Four years. Um, two years. So um, so Ryan will also cover some of the, the details. Um, what we're planning to do is give you some sort of just general background to how we set the exam, um, how we mark the exam, and then um, some general tips and comments regarding communications and the exam paper itself, and then get into the detail of the October 2015 exam. Um, I think both, Ryan is gonna do the one question, I'm gonna do the other question. Um, I think, you will see that what we've done is basically told you what you shouldn't be doing, rather than what you should be doing, um, and hopefully by um, by association you'll get the fact that actually the reverse is also true. You, what you what you do need to know, and what you should be doing. So that's the the process for today. As I said, please, we wanted to be as interactive as possible. So stick your hand up ask questions um, so that we can we can cover up with anything that's not clear or anything that you want to get um, an answer to that we haven't answered. I wanted to start to just ask a question, how many of you have written the communications exam before? Put your hand up if you have. OK, so a reasonable number of people here. Um, there is It is the biggest exam that the society sets and writes. Um, so we've got a lot of people that are writing it. Um, From our perspective, um, there is quite a a large failure rate, um, and that's not because we're trying to be uh, hard on people and not let people into the profession, but actually it's because the standard isn't really met. Um, And sometimes it's pretty basic stuff that's causing people not to pass. Um, I know there is somebody in the last session who had written their ninth exam, a ninth time, um, so it's not unusual for people to write this exam multiple times. That's not, again, what we are trying to achieve. Um, there, are At least probably about 10% of the people have written it more than four times. Um, if you're in that category, I won't embarrass you. But um, the situation really from our perspective is we're trying to not let you get into that category. Um, and so hopefully today will uh, help you in terms of passing the exam um, going forwards. So that's just a sort of general comments. So what I want to start with firstly is um, the exam setting process and just give you a bit of background in terms of the exam setting. We do have um, myself, I'm the principal examiner, we have two examiners as well. So Ryan is one of the examiners, we have another examiner who's based in Cape Town. Um, That's not intentional, it was just by coincidence that we've ended up that way. but we also have people that we consider to be communications experts, these are people who are not uh, actuaries, um, so by uh, default I suspect that most actuaries are not particularly good communicators. Uh, and one of the things that we did as a society is when we localised it in South Africa we got people involved who are communications experts, um, that's what they do all day long and they are involved in helping us set the exam process. So once we set the exam paper and our technical questions, um, they give us input in terms of what we should correct um, from our perspective as well, from their perspective as well. Um, So that's quite an important aspect to to what we do as well. Um, And what we do is we set the the question. Um, The examiner also works out a model solution, so um, actually we have tried to give a model solution for ourselves and then we develop a mark schedule um, from that. Um, So those are the the sort of three steps um, in the process. And that all happens um, relatively easily and quickly, I guess, uh, as a general rule. The marking, um, just to give you some background in terms of how we actually mark, um, we have, uh, firstly what we do is we try to make sure that we get consistency of standards across the piece. So we've got about 20 markers that mark all the exams. We have about 180 students writing every session. And um, we obviously want to make sure that we get consistency so that everybody, if you were marked by marker A or B or C or D, you'll get a similar mark um, and a pass-fail of the, of the same people. So what we do is we actually pick three scripts to start with, um, and those are randomly chosen. Um, if you're one of those three, you get to be marked by everybody. So we, all of our markers um, mark those three scripts and then um, we go through those on a telephone conference and actually discuss those three scripts and where we might have had differences of opinion in terms of um, the marking standards. Um, And then we make adjustments to the marking schedule based on those three scripts, and and we basically make sure that we've got 100% clarity. So if if those people have given us slightly different answers or approaches, we will build that into the the marking schedule as well following the telephone conference. And then when we mark the papers, every paper is marked twice. Um, it's marked by an actuary and it's marked by a communications person. So it's, uh, that's slightly different from um, what the institute and faculty have done in the past. But what we do, as I said, we, we value the input that we're getting from the non-technical people in terms of how we've communicated. And the, the value of it really from us is... As actuaries, I have a degree of understanding of what you're trying to tell me, and I might take it for granted. So when you're explaining some actuarial concept to me, I don't have quite the same requirements as if you were explaining it um, to my wife, who isn't an actuary, or to a common, you know, another person in the street, a, a man in the street, or a trustee, or whatever it might be. Um, so we understand that as actuaries, we will take a lot of things for granted in our communication, and we don't want to do that. So one of the reasons why we have the, um, the, the communications people marking the papers as well. So they, they look at it from a totally different perspective and they often give us insights that might make r- remarks about how um, the person hasn't communicated what they wanted to, what they needed to actually tell us. Um, so that's, it's quite important from our perspective because it gives us a much better understanding of what is actually going on. Um, and then we amalgamate the marks uh, 50/50, so I have 50% from the communications markers, 50% from the actuarial markers, um, and that then gets uh, sent to me at that point in time. And then I look at everybody's scripts who either have significant differences between the communications markers and the actuarial markers. So if the 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 marks differ quite significantly, I will review those scripts and I also review any marginal scripts. Um, that results in me looking at about 30% of the scripts in total, um, so it's quite a vigorous and rigorous process. So When you fail, um, it's not because um, somebody hasn't looked at it properly, um, it's because we have spent significant amount of time already up to that point in time uh, making sure that you're not a candidate you should have passed. So that just gives you some sort of general overview of how we set the papers and how we mark the papers. Has anybody got any questions that they want to get clarity on before we move on from there? My communication clear enough? Good. So some general comments then in terms of the communication paper itself um, and some of the things I just want to remark on because the thing, these are the things that we've seen um, as problematic I think for for many times in all the exams that we come through. The first one is uh, around the format. Um, it is incredible to me that so many people write this exam and don't know how to format a letter, um, or do not know how to format a presentation. It is There are marks that we give, and if you see the mark schedules you'll see that every exam always has marks for formatting. It should be marks that you are getting for granted, and yet I would say probably 25 to 30% of the candidates lose marks entirely because of the formatting. Um, Really, you should not be excused for getting that wrong. Um, So please pay attention to the formatting and make sure that you've got those things um, sorted out. My second general comment goes around tone. I would say this is probably the biggest problem that many people have when they write the communications exam, is that they do not look and understand the tone that they should be writing. Um, so if it is a letter to your mother, um, you would not start that as Dear Mrs. So-and-so Temple or whoever it might be your mother's name is. Um, that, I mean, anybody writing a letter to your mother and doing that, it would quite clearly be incorrect. And if you're very formalistic in your tone thereafter, there's no marker, not the actuarial marker or the communications marker that is going to pass you. Um, so we, that is a regular issue that we have. Um, when, we, when we have markers writing, or people writing um, to a formal person, so we had a question one year that was written to the Director General of Finance, um, and uh, the, the tone was, most of the people I think that failed had a problem with their tone. They were really looking at and saying things which were just inappropriate to the Director General of Finance. Um, I very clearly remember seeing one marginal script who, um who was explaining how inflation worked, Um, to the Director General of Finance. Now, our government might be not great at certain things, but I would hope that the Director General of Finance understands how inflation works. Um, So spending your time, uh, you know, explaining that to the Director General of Finance is definitely going to be a reason why you will fail. Um, So the tone of what you are doing and who you are writing to is absolutely crucial. I cannot stress that enough. I would say most people fail because they get the tone wrong either on the presentation or on the letter or the email or whatever it is that we're asking you to do and um, so please it is the most important thing sit and think about the tone that you should be writing uh, when you come to actually write uh, the letter or whatever it might be spelling and grammar I don't know um, for the last what's it, three years now I guess we've had uh, computerized exams. Um, I would hope that everybody here knows how to use the spell checker on uh, Word, and yet it is incredible to me how many times we still see people sending through things without having spell checked their documents. And there's a grammar checker on Word as well. Uh, You really shouldn't be making either of those, um, and it is significantly a problem. um, And again, if you're a marginal script, it will be the result of you not passing. And then we have uh, my fourth and favorite category, stupid mistakes. Um, I spoke to one candidate, I don't know if you hear, uh, on the telephone after the the last exam. Um, And uh, I I don't normally do that, so don't expect a telephone call from me if you fail. But um, the reason I phoned phoned them was because they were a marginal candidate and they had written the exam a number of times. And the the reason that they were written a number of times was obviously because their scripts weren't good enough. And one of the things that I noticed from this type of script is just how careless they had been in terms of the numbers um, that they had put down. So you'll see in a moment, the, the second question that we'll do is um, a PowerPoint presentation to trustees. And um, what one of the biggest mistakes that people made in that question was that people did not add up the numbers correctly. Uh, quite honestly, um, that is incredibly disappointing given that you're were co- hoping to become qualified actuaries. If you can't add three numbers correctly and put that on a presentation, um, that does not give me a great impression of, uh, of whether you're able to actually communicate technical facts to people. So stupid mistakes is really one of the key things that I, people can cut out. Um, I think part of it is that you probably don't read your work when you finished it, and you probably should. Um, so some, you know, make that a rule when you've finished it, there should be plenty of time for you to write the exam and go back and read the letter that you've written, or read through the presentation. Um, and you need to do that more carefully than many people do. I think that's one of the, uh, the things. The, I mean, just the, I think well, I don't think it was this exam, but the previous exam, people just used the wrong titles, the wrong names. I mentioned the Director General of Finance. Um, People are writing to the Director General of Insurance um, and not even using the correct title of the person that the question had asked for. Uh, at that that's really doesn't give a great impression in terms of the way things are done. The fifth comment I want to make is we, we do ask people always to put a word count down um, particularly for uh, emails and letters. Um, it is in every single exam. If you don't do it, you're throwing away four marks. If you do it. And lie to me, you also throw away four marks. In fact, I'm inclined to give negative marks. Um, We do check. We've got computer programs that are able to check and tell us what the word count is. Uh, There were at least three people in the last session that were out by more than 25 words. Um, That's not a mistake that you could have made Um, That's unintentionally. That goes to the question of professional ethics, and actually this is part of the professionalism uh, suite of exams, the communications exam, and it does give me a very poor impression of the candidates if they lie about the word count to try and get the marks. Um, So all three of those candidates failed. Um, One of them would have passed uh, if it hadn't been for the word count. Um, I will not pass somebody who does that. Um, So please make sure you do it, for starters, and secondly um be honest um we do check uh, and you don't want to get caught out in that in that process so that's that's quite important yep a couple of questions i'll take yours now just start with you
1: hi oh i just wanted to make a comment that after my counseling session this year i learned that the tables also count towards the word count so in my previous attempt the tables I pasted them as pictures so that it didn't include the word count in there. So I just wanted to make a comment to the people that they are aware as well. I, I didn't know as well.
0: Okay, one of the candidates who didn't count the word count in the tables. Um, so yes, that's true. Um, the word, ca- the words. If we say word count and you have words in a table, they also include um, and they are counted as well. So that's a, that's a very valuable comment, and somebody needs to pay attention to that. We've got another question at the back there as well. I mean, just by the way, and it wasn't you, because um, they, we did actually have somebody who, when we excluded the word count, even from the tables, there was still like 25 words uh, difference. So, yep. Um,
2: Brian here. Um, could you send out some kind of clarity, just in terms of the word count, of what will actually count within the word count and what won't? Um, like uh, your your dates, and are you like if you're writing a letter, are you starting from the address to dear whoever until you regards from whoever, and not the address, or are you including the address? The address is it? excluded. Yeah. Okay, so it's from the dear the address to the address. Yep. Okay. So
0: that's I mean that's the only one that needs clarity, I guess, because if we ask you to keep in a word count of a brochure or an email, um, you don't have all of that stuff generally. So, you should be able to generally write. um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, You probably should be able to easily fit into the word count. Um, But if you're going to go and throw away marks, um, you should throw away your word count marks if you can be better at a communication. So, if you really can't actually describe what you need to describe or explain what you need to explain in the letter, um, you should. Sacrifice the four marks for word count and do a better explanation. Um, they're, they're four marks. That's right, Ryan. It's four, four marks for word count. So when you when you look at it, um, that's two percent um, in the end because they get halved. Um, so it's it's not a lot. Um, and if you can actually do a better explanation by having more words, I would throw away the word count um, if I was you. But you can, or we always believe you can easily do it in the word count, so. That's just some general comments then on, um, on letters. Um, I mean, I have talked about uh, tone already uh, in general, but one of the tests that we do in particular, and particularly the communications people, but we, we often will ask the actuarial markers this as well, is we'll say, would you have been happy to have had your name signed to that letter that was written? So if at, after I've read it and I think I would never have sent out a letter, well, I would have been embarrassed if my name was on the bottom of that letter. Um, that's a fairly clear indication to me that the person hasn't passed. Um, so that's a it's a very good general test. Um, it's one of the ways that we test tone. It's one of the ways that we test that we're happy with this candidate in general. Um, so you might do very poorly on the technical marks, but actually at the end of the the, the question, if we ask ourselves, actually would I have been happy to... Um, had my name at the bottom of that letter, and the answer is yes, then I've probably got the tone right. So that that is something you can ask yourself um, as well. But there's also a sort of second part of it um, in terms of tone, is that if you were the recipient of the letter, would you have been happy to receive that letter? Has it answered the question that you had, and would you have been happy with the tone? So a number of times I've seen people writing things, and I think if I actually had received that letter from a bank explaining my bank charges or whatever it might be, um I would have been very irritated um and that's not particularly successful if you've managed to to do that if you've irritated um the person who's meant to be reading it so those are the two tests in terms particularly in terms of letters, yep.
3: I haven't written uh, the paper yet, so this question might be relevant, but what if you don't understand the topic you need to explain?
0: You're right, the next session um, would be the quickest and easiest answer. And I can say that from experience, because I wrote the communications exam twice, and the first time I was asked, um, I was through the UK, and they asked me to explain APR. Um, How many people know what APR is? Uh, you did it in whatever, Maths of Finance or whatever the subject is called, Fundamentals of Actuarial Maths um, and uh, so I sat there having that exact problem because I didn't actually know how to explain it because I didn't know what it was because I couldn't remember. Um, I have to say that we do try to avoid that so um, I don't know Ryan is there anything you think been in that sort of category?
3: becomes extremely difficult to explain something if you don't understand it yourself. Uh, It's one of the points that I've got in in my uh, slides later. Um, I think you need to do your best, you know, to try and understand it and try and interpret it, Um, but the chances of being able to explain it correctly are are tough. A
2: a follow-up remark on that point is, um, is it correct to assume that if you practice enough uh, past papers and you are then very likely to cover let's say the you know the kind of the 95% plus of the topics that are likely to come up or surface and in you know through doing that remove the probability or the risk of not understanding
0: Unfortunately, I think the answer is no, because we're pretty inventive in terms of our topics. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things is the, the, I mean, we, we do try to not cover the same things. Um, so, I mean, I think that's actually an intentional thing. So, um, Ryan and myself and the other principal examiner just recently had a telephone conference where we were talking about the exam papers for this year and what we're probably going to cover. Um, uh, from a topic perspective and i don't think we've covered any of those topics in previous exams so it's not going to help you um from a topic perspective and there's i mean because actual science is a wide field there's a you know there's a lot of things that we can technically ask you that you should be able to explain um i, I mean i do think we try not to ask questions where people will be caught out because they have lack of knowledge that is not the intention i mean you you you're all at a certain level um, already in terms of your actuarial skills, and um, we are trying to ask questions which either are common in the country we find ourselves, um, the topics of conversation that you might be having on a regular basis, um, or you would have covered um, in your studies up to this point. So I think that that is our intention, we, if we get that wrong you can send me an email and tell me that we haven't got it right, but I think generally that's what we try to do. Um, So we're not trying to test your technical competence in this exam, Um, and that's one of the things that's quite important. Um, The third thing I want to say with regards to tone is please do not be patronising. The the number of times where the question that we're asking is not particularly complicated and, and needing some sort of explanation, if you are patronizing in your, uh, your tone, uh, either in a presentation or in a letter, um, it will be picked up very quickly. Um, it's picked up by us, it's picked up by the communications people. For them, that's a fail. I mean, the communications people, you want to see them get uh, red in the neck and uptight is when people have been patronizing in their presentations or, or in their letters or emails. And then be very careful that you don't say anything that's inappropriate. Um, we have had one or two people saying things um, that are just inappropriate in terms of you would never say in in, in any form of written communication. Um, so be very careful that you don't say anything like that, um, like admitting the company has made a mistake or something. Uh, if if it's if it does if the question doesn't say that, um, as well. So that's um, my comments that go out to tone. Anybody got any questions on tone? Okay. We'll take that as going the wrong way. Um, I then got level, um, and and this really is about. um, It's not about the tone. It's more about the content in terms of who are you actually writing to, and what are you saying to them. Um, So it is quite an important aspect for you to think about when you start writing the questions. So when you read the questions through, you should be thinking to yourself, who am I writing to? What level do I need to be communicating to them at? How simple does my communication need to be? How complex can it be? And you do need to think about who those are. So in the, the, the ones that are coming up are the questions that we did for the October 2015. The second one was a presentation to trustees. Um, and actually your level of communication to pension fund trustees can be at a different level than to a man in the street. Um, so, think about that very carefully in terms of the level um, uh, that you're demonstrating when you write. And then, as I said, I, I gave this example earlier. Please be careful about explaining things unnecessarily, like explaining inflation to the Director General of Finance. Um, I don't think that helps.
2: Yep. I came across the notes that said that sometimes cliches can be a little bit unnecessary, but sometimes you can't really end it neither way like for example please don't hesitate to contact us it's a cliche but it said don't do that or it's like just
0: i don't i mean i i think you do need to be careful of clichés um but um yeah i would if depending again on the letter i mean if you wrote that to your mother um i would say that's a problem um but if you're writing that you know as a business letter and you said um, if you need further clarity, please contact me or something like that. Um, I think there are ways of saying it that are not too cliched, but, but certainly um, I think you should try and avoid them, but it's, it won't get you, and we wouldn't penalize you, I don't think. Um, no, Ron's nodding, shaking his head also. So, yeah, I'd, if you communicate well, um, that wouldn't go against you heavily. Somebody else had a question over there.
1: Yeah, sorry, just with regards to the trustees, um, sometimes you get employee uh, nominated trustees and therefore they would not have significant knowledge with regards to pension funds, et cetera, et cetera. So now you sort of communicating to a crowd where
3: half will understand and half not. So how would you then?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a good question. Um, I, you can probably always err on being uh, over communicating rather than under, um, but I think you can also, you can generally say, I'm assuming a level of, of knowledge. Um, and actually, I've seen people do that, um, actually make a note somewhere and say, I've assumed that these trustees have had some trustee training or something like that. Um, uh, you know, There's no harm in that, You're not gonna get any marks for it, but it does demonstrate to me immediately, actually, you have thought about it. Um, so it's, you need to be careful when you do it. Not everybody do that now in the next session, but um, but just you know, I think I, I think it does demonstrate. Actually, I have thought about the problem, um, but I think even generally, even then, you, you 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 would guess that a pension fund trustee would have some knowledge of how pension funds work um, as well. So I think that's quite an important. It is an assumption that we would make, and I think we would assume that as examiners. Okay, um, I have got the point here about um, repeating things. Um, (laughs) The number of times people just say the same thing um, in a slightly different way, sometimes in exactly the same way, but um, that doesn't actually get you double marks. Um, In fact, this is a a problem for most actuarial exams, so you can take that as a free piece of advice for other actuarial exams as well. Writing the same thing uh, in a slightly different way doesn't get you another set of marks. So in communication, that's seen quite negatively. In the other actuarial exams, it's called a waste of time. um, And you don't get the marks uh, anyway. So please just bear that in mind as well. And um, we do expect people to write introductions and conclusions um, and actually finish things off properly. Um, It is quite an important aspect of demonstrating level again. So please just bear that in mind as well. a number of times people write letters or things just don't uh, actually put the right concluding comments or even the please don't hesitate to contact me um, you know just sort of finish mid-sentence that doesn't really help in terms of demonstrating level at all the third thing in terms of letters um, and it's probably you know it's letters emails um, you can probably take it in is just be careful that um, you don't give a biased, one-sided view um, when you're writing something. So we we did have we have had a couple of examples in the past of where we have asked you are writing on behalf of the Actual Society, um, and uh, and then we would expect uh, a response to whoever the Department of Health or whoever it might have been, and people took a very one-sided, in my view, politically incorrect view. Um, as an actual society, we would never expect that, so you need to be very careful um, as to, if you are going to take a strong view on something, as to why you might be doing that. Um, so please be very, very careful on that. People definitely got the, the, the tone and, um, and coverage wrong because they started taking a one-sided view on the issue rather than um, trying to cover all the all the sides. So think about who it is you're writing for, if it's the industry, the profession or um, the the company itself. In terms of technical content, I mean each of these things always cover technical content, there's no question about that from our perspective, I mean that's one of the things we are testing. Um, But we actually also are keen to see how you're putting across that technical content. So there are technical marks for things and getting the right technical points. But they would. If you didn't get them, I've had we've had one paper in particular where I very clearly remember the person actually didn't do a great job at all of explaining the technical things, and in fact probably had used the wrong technical things, but um, communicated extremely well, um, and and that will actually get you a pass. I say that, um, and I'll caveat it because in a moment we'll, we'll, I'll talk about sort of fatal errors, but um, people do sometimes make fatal errors as well, but I'll, I'll cover that in a second. But but do think about what technical point we are trying to get to. There's generally, we don't try to make it very complicated, so there's normally only one or two major technical points that we're actually trying to um, get to the heart of. And think about that, identify that. what that is, and then make sure that it is communicated clearly in whatever whatever form you're communicating. And along goes with that is the depth that you need to actually communicate that. So I would suggest when you're actually writing the exam, sit down, read the exam question, identify the technical point, and then say, well, how much depth do I need to go into to actually answer this for the person? Um, Get that up front before you start writing your, your solution. It helps, particularly when you're writing to lay people, to give examples and illustrations. There are often marks, um, particularly if there's numbers involved, um, it it is generally quite good to illustrate those things with graphs. Um, It looks much better, um, whether it be a presentation or a letter. Um, It's much easier for somebody visually just to look at it and say, yeah, I understand that. I understand what what they're trying to display. Don't force that, but if you can give... Um, either an example or you can give an illustration, Uh, it is very valuable to do that Um, and definitely you'll see most of the questions and I guess your, actually my, certainly the second question, I think both questions in the last paper had examples of how you can do this as well. And then as I already said um, right up front, the the basics, the structure, um, are actually quite important in terms of, of letter um, and the word count, uh, I'll stress that again. And generally you need to give some method of how to contact you, particularly if you're writing a letter on behalf of a company. It would be extremely unusual that you wouldn't give um, some sort of contact details. So you might say, you know, please feel free, to contact me and give a telephone number or an email address or whatever it is. Um, but, but please make sure that you include that. And make sure that you've got the addresses correct. Again, the number of people that actually just write either the wrong format, or actually, just get the address information incorrect, uh, and you lose really stupid marks uh, that you should be getting. And then the last thing is, um, we do expect people to use paragraphs. You don't have to write everything in the same sentence, um, just flowing on. And you might say that's pretty obvious, but you know, again, look at it and say, at the end of it, when I if I receive this letter, would I be happy with this, or is this like a big paragraph, and should it be broken up? A number of times we've seen people with just, you know, chunks of data like this, um, which is not easy to read and particularly if you're a lay person, you wouldn't you'd probably get bored about halfway through it. So please think about that and put the paragraph breaks in appropriate places. Um, we do look for that and again the communications people in particular look for that. Has anybody got any comments or questions before I move off of just sort of some of the general comments in terms of letters? Okay, then I just want to give one or two general comments in terms of presentations. Um, Again, you need to think about what is the key message that you're trying to get across in the presentation. It is difficult because, in a sense, we're looking at your presentation as a written presentation and aren't actually hearing you deliver the message. So it needs to be very clear as to what message you are delivering in the presentation when we look at it. you know, if you saw my slides and without me speaking, it, it wouldn't be as useful uh, as me hopefully speaking as well. Otherwise, I'd just be, you know, flashing up slides and not saying anything. Um, but that's what we're marking off of. So it is slightly different, but you need to make sure that the key message is very clear. So please make sure that, that it is coming through quite clearly. Again, same comments as what we made on the letters. Uh, Think about who the audience is and demonstrate that you understand who the audience is and make sure that the tone and level of the presentation um, is is there. Not too much information on slides. Um, People think six slides and I'll use font three and um, I can put in 100 words on a slide. Um, You're not gonna pass if you do that. you really need to not put more words on the slides than we've got on these slides. So have a look at that's really what you should be aiming for, is a minimum amount of information really. And you don't need to use full sentences. The number of people that use full sentences for, for slides, you, I wouldn't ever do that. Um, you're trying to get across the key message, make sure that it's absolutely clear, um, but don't pack the information in because you've only got to use six or eight slides. Again, getting the basics right is important. So, if there's a header slide and a footer slide, you need to make sure those are there. Generally, um, always uh, are two of the slides that we would be we thinking about. Should be some sort of opening of the presentation and some sort of closing of the presentation as well. And along with that, obviously, the number of slides. If we say six to eight and you use ten, you're going to lose marks. We do give. Uh, marks or negative marks for the number of slides that have been told to use. So uh, if you go outside of that you are going to lose marks for sure uh, in terms of the, the details. I've already made the point about um, fonts. Anybody got any questions of that before I move? i was just going to make some sort of general comments and then and then we will.
2: Uh, yeah. I just want to ask a question. What if in one slide you have so much information like you see that there's key points more key points than in other slides and you're saying that the, uh, each and every s- uh, slide must be minimal as possible so in that case you can miss the key points then how do you juggle around that because sometimes for me it's a problem
0: yeah i mean i i think you've got a balance between i didn't say minimal amount on the slides i said you know reasonable amount on the slides not too much i think part of the problem is uh, people put a lot of detail sometimes on the slide trying to cover everything that's in the question and without thinking about do I need to cover this and can I leave it out and is it a key message that I need to be sending so I think it's a balance between uh, getting the right information in versus having way too much information um, I think that's qu- quite a it is that is the crux of what we are testing really somebody else with a question at the back there
2: Um thanks. Uh if you have a bottom uh, bottom up approach and you're leading up to the answer, and the answer is basically the last slide before you do a summary, how do you get around not being too repetitive in your summary based on the results?
0: Um yeah, I mean that is a good question. I, I the the reality is I think um repetition does generally come in the summary. Um you know I think that's just the way it is. If you if you have built it up, you will almost have two slides that look identical. That's your your fundamental problem. Um, you may want to just think about how you finish that. Then you might not need to have a summary in the same sense as a summary. You could actually, you know, say, "I've covered this, and here's my details to contact me," or something like that, as your as your closing slide rather. Um, but I mean generally, we we wouldn't do that. I think I'm just trying to think back over the last few presentations that we've had and I don't think it's been that sort of a style so that you could actually, you could write a summary. Um, the interest, I mean the summary generally doesn't have any marks in it um, per se in terms of technical content. So you shouldn't have said anything that you haven't already scored marks elsewhere. But if you don't have the summary, you will use you will marks. Um, from the communications markets perspective so it's it is quite important to keep it there from a communication perspective that you but if, if it is clear up to that point you could probably sacrifice it
1: in terms of technical content if we required to do a calculation um, say for loan repayments or something will we be given the formula because maybe we forgot how to do it
0: um, sometimes I think is the answer sometimes we wouldn't So if it was something that we really think you should know like multiplying interest by um, an amount you know we, we wouldn't give you a formula for it but if it's particularly complete if it's more complicated we would probably give you the formula um, I mean they've I, I think actually this question I guess is was it last was it October was it April last year they had a bit of technical with repayments I can't remember which one but um, was it? Was May, you know, May the May question of last year? I think had a bit where you had to do some calculations, and people didn't always get the calculations correct. But um, we don't often ask that, and and when we do, we're trying to ask questions that are, you know, would be relatively straightforward things that you you should be able to at this stage in your career, and knowledge um, get right. Any other questions? so just some sort of general comments and then Ryan will deal with question one from October 2015 and I'll deal with question two um, technical errors so this goes to the point of you know if people do we are requesting something and you do a technical calculation um, we would differentiate those into two categories one minor or other one being fatal um, if for instance you could not calculate how much interest was you know if we said a guy invested a balance of 100 Rand and at the end of the year um, he gets 10% interest and you couldn't work out that that is 110 Rand he now has in his account. Um, we would consider that to be a fatal flaw. Um, we would wonder why you managed to get as far as you have um, in actuarial science. So in every exam we, there are certain things that we consider to be fatal flaws um, and if you make mis- if you make the mistake, we will not pass you. Um, so I said, in this October exam, if you add it up incorrectly on the trustees' slide, I consider that to be a fatal flaw. Um, I, if you presented to a group of pension fund trustees and did not add up your numbers, your three numbers correctly, I think they would fire you, um, and rightfully so. Um, so you know things like that, I think, are quite key. And so we will always, every exam, say this is a fatal flaw. It's always a discussion amongst the examiners and markers as to what we consider to be a fatal flaw. If they pick it up, the markers will generally make sure that you fail, but they will always flag those candidates to me as well um, to make sure that that we don't pass anybody who has fallen on that particular hurdle. So sometimes the technical errors are minor and that doesn't really make any difference to us and we move on, but uh, if it is something major, um, it it will result in you failing. Um, Use of abbreviations and notations, um, be very careful about that please, so sometimes the questions actually give you the notations and give you the actuarial speak or whatever it is um, and you are then asked to communicate something to a layperson, please be very careful in putting something into a letter that's a layperson if they don't understand the notation. Um, It's one of the things we are testing for so we might give you the question and expect you to know that you can't put notation, actuarial notation, into a letter to a person in the street. And they will not understand that. Um, so just because we've put it in the question doesn't mean that you can put it in the answer. Um, think about whether it's appropriate or not. If you were communicating to another actuary, I'd have no problem. You, know, you, would, you would expect them to understand what that is, and you would be welcome to use the notation. So again, any form of abbreviations Think about whether they're obvious or not. You know, If you wanted to say, for example, and you used EG, I would think that most people would understand that and we wouldn't hold that against you. But uh, generally, I'd be very careful about using abbreviations um, in the communication exam. And I've made the point a number of times. Um, if you haven't yet heard me, um, be accurate about what you're putting down and making sure that you get the details. Uh, write as well. One sort of concluding comment, um, we've talked a lot about and we will now go through examples of the letter and the presentation, uh, do not expect that the exam will be a letter and a presentation only. Um, I think it was two exams ago, maybe three exams ago, where we didn't have a presentation at all um, and everybody, I mean we had some students actually writing to complain that we didn't ask for a presentation. There, there is no rule about the, whether we have to ask for a presentation or whether we can ask for two letters or two emails or none of the above. We are testing communication skills, we can use any medium and any mechanism. So please don't sit there thinking you're definitely going to get a letter and a presentation. I can promise you that in the next few sessions you will not get um, one letter, one presentation, we will change that at some point. So. Um, It's important I think for you just to have that mindset don't go in with a mindset of thinking that you're going to get one of each of those right Sorry my fault Um, I mean just one or two. It's probably just general comments again Um, When you look at the October 2015 paper a lot of people did get didn't think about the level um, and the purpose behind it and so we did have the one letter and we did have the, uh, the, the presentation. The presentation was to trustees. Um, you need to think about the level that you're writing, as I said, and I think the, the, a number of people failed at the hurdle of not really considering who they were actually writing to. So that's just sort of application of, of my, my earlier point. Um, we were testing question one in particular. We were thinking about how do you write to a lay person um, so that's, that was really, if you, if you look at it, that's the core of it. Uh, and question two was, in a sense, a semi-technical audience. They weren't a technical audience, but they would have had some understanding of pension funds and how pension funds operated. So it's important for you to think through that, is to say, what are we actually testing? And when you come to the question um, in May, that's exactly what you should be thinking about as well. And. It's important for us um, as well to understand uh, the level of technical nature that we're are we actually checking. So the layperson, we will not be checking a lot of detailed technical content. Um, it's very different for them versus a pension fund trustees. And I do think that's uh
3: Thank you Peter. All right, so I'm gonna cover the uh, first question of the October 2015 paper. Uh, More from a technical point of view, I'm not gonna go into all the things that Peter's already covered. So just to remind you as to what the the facts of that question were. Um, So this was, we had a million rand invested in two different funds. Um, We were told that they earned the same annualized return. um, That there was a definition of annualized return given in the paper but the two funds earned the same returns but in reverse order. So initially the one earned uh, a loss of 5% and the other earned a return of twenty and a half percent. Fund B then earned the reverse of that. To complicate a little bit further, then there was a cash deposit that was made into the funds, both the same amount into both funds, midway through the period. And then at the end of the second year, both funds had different values, and the client had written in to ask how this was possible, given that they'd earned the same return. Okay. So I think the first thing to do with any of these type of with any of the questions is, is to figure out what are the instructions. Okay. Break the question down into every single little piece of instruction that you need to provide an answer on. So what often happens is the first parts or the the minor instructions are glossed over and then lots of time is spent on a piece of the instructions. So in this particular one there was a specific question from the client to say, what is an annualized return? You had to explain what an annualized return was, there was a definition given but you needed to express it in your own words. Then he was asking the question how is it possible to have the same return from the two different from the two different funds? Even though because the values of the fund at the end of the period were different. Uh, there was the instruction to write the letter. Um, they gave you some information about what you could assume about the client, what they, they understood. They understood a one-year return, but they didn't know anything about multiple year returns. So you would have to do some explanation of A compounding effect of interest from one year to the next okay so you had to explain the accumulation over a longer period and then this was the one that most people spent most of the time on was show the accumulation of the initial investment and the subsequent deposit but there's an important word there and I'll come to that just now and that is the word separately and that tripped up a lot of a lot of candidates on this exam Uh, An instruction on the word count and then importantly to show a stepwise approach and don't use formulas so that was quite explicit okay so I think every question that you get you need to look at each and every sentence and examine it for the instructions that are expected of you all right so the way I've approached this is what went wrong so where did where did people who successful um, go wrong on on their solutions so other than write the letter um, there were people who admitted um, addressing the other instructions so far too little attention was paid to those initial instructions that I, I covered most of the attention was given to the show the accumulation mm-hmm. Right, and what was important about showing that accumulation was that word separately and one of, this is one of those fatal errors that uh, Peter referred to earlier. There was an explicit instruction, show the separate build-up of the deposit separately from the initial investment. A lot of candidates grouped that all as one thing. So they showed the accumulation of the whole fund value from the start with the cash flow right to the end. And what that actually robbed the client of in the explanation was to be able to see the effect of the subsequent deposit and the returns being earned in the reverse order okay and so it was the crux of the explanation to be able to show how those came through uh, yeah so I've covered all of that there so read the instructions very carefully and I and make sure that you're actually addressing it exactly as it's been asked for. Right. So just going back to some of those other instructions. So many many candidates didn't actually address what an annualized return was, um, even though there was a little definition given in the notes to the the question. Um, not explaining compounding over two years. So just assuming that the client understood. How interest would progress from one year to the next, Um, and then you had to show that the reverse order of returns had no effect on the annualized return. You wanted to show that earning minus five percent in one year and twenty and a half percent in the other year was the same as earning twenty and a half in the first and minus five in the second. they both gave you the seven and a half percent annualized return, and you had to illustrate that to the client. All right, so this is just a point I made earlier about just sort of understanding you you need to make sure you understand what's going on in the situation that's being just put to you. Um and if you if you can't understand what's going on, it's going to be extremely difficult to to um give an explanation to the client. Um in summarizing to the client and concluding what a lot of candidates did was forget to draw the two pieces together so they focused on either the fact that the um, that there was a cash deposit or the reverse reverse order of the returns but the crux was that actually both of these things acting together had caused the difference in the fund value and that's what you needed to summarize and show to the to the client in the in concluding I I did see some examples where the explanation and the illustration of the accumulation was right, but it was the most complicated way of getting there that you could have come up with, and that's not going to help. If you understand what's going on, then use the simplest approach, the easiest approach, to be able to show what's happening. If you overcomplicate it, it's not the solution that we're looking for. So I find the simplest, clearest, and easiest to understand version. And then uh, just touching further on what, what Peter alluded to earlier was accuracy. It is fairly common for um, really t- simple mistakes to be made um, in, in putting the solution together. So literally copying numbers from the question into the solution. Um, numbers get transposed. Reread your solution. Be very c- conscious of checking that the information has come across correctly from the question into your answer. Um, calculation errors, again, are possible. And then, thirdly, choice of words. Um, be very clear about what you mean by your words. So, a simple example if you say the return is. Which return are you talking about? Are you talking about the return in the first period for fund A or are you talking about the annualized return? Be very specific about what you're talking about so the examiner isn't left or the client for that matter isn't left um, wondering which which return are you talking about? okay so be specific um and then a couple of other things that that might be useful um is. There are some things that, as technical people, we take for granted and we think are obvious. But if you're thinking about it from the perspective of the person who's reading it, it's not that obvious. So you perhaps need to err a little bit on the side of stating some things that are obvious. Okay, mm-hmm. so the addition of two numbers, for example, it might not be—it's obvious that that's what they add together, but it's worth mm-hmm. stating. And there are marks for being that clear Uh, and then just further on to what what Peter commented on on tables and graphics exceptionally useful in getting getting across the concept but they must be appropriate so in this particular question tables were great Um, it was a nice way to be able to show the accumulation of the the fund show the interest show the different uh, the cash flows Um, but a graph probably wouldn 't have worked there was was a candidate who used the graph, but a graph wouldn 't have been appropriate to be able to get the message across in this situation so make sure it 's an appropriate graphic representation for for what you want um, and it 's only useful if the client can understand what 's in the table so don 't just present a table and then not explain what 's what's what 's inside the table um so that that's quite important the client needs to understand that okay so those were the the sort of critical technical things that have gone that went wrong in question 1 um, and i hope that those things give you some clues as to what you need to look for in addressing future questions any questions
1: You said that the definition of annualized returns was given to us so that we could explain it to the client or the examiner. But what if our definition in our answer is very similar to the definition given in the question itself? Would that then be penalized?
3: Generally, you'd have to look at it in, in terms of, will that client understand that definition? So there might be some things in there, in that definition that we've given you in the question that might take some assumed knowledge into account. So if you're then presenting it back to the client, you might need to expand it to explain some of those things. So you have to look at it from who the client is and who you're communicating to. In terms of uh,
2: the conclusion, um, can you factor it on, because I did that question, uh, but when I concluded, I concluded on what happened in terms of the negative return. I, I felt like the negative return was the crux of why the other fund performed better than the other one. So I'm just asking, because you're saying that you should collaborate everything in the conclusion. But for me, I felt like if I can talk about the negative return after the deposit, and because after the deposit, then it lost the other fund lost more money than the other one is that enough like for this specific question one
3: I think if you so if you addressed all those other instructions so you would addressed what the analyzed return was you would addressed um, every single other sort of feature of the, the, the instructions um, but in that accumulation you only addressed what happened from the end of the first year to the end of the second year that wouldn't be sufficient the question is asking you is to show the accumulation of the initial deposit as well as the cash flow that happened after the, second, after the end of the first year. So, so that wouldn't have been enough and I, I, I suspect you would have failed on that. Uh, so the presentation will be available for, for you for afterwards.
2: Is it appropriate like, to use like tables um, in a letter?
3: Yes, I, I don't have anything with tables in a letter. Um, so tables are, give a lot of clarity as to, especially when you're building up something like an accumulated return or a fund value. Um, it's, it's neat, but you need to explain what's in the table. You need to um, tell the client what it is that you're showing him.
0: I mean, uh, th- probably the best answer that I saw um, of this letter question um, the person actually got about 93% or something for it. Um, it w- was with the table. Um, really well done. Um, they, they had it laid out with the table with the two funds and the money coming through and it was very easy to see and then they, as Ryan said they did an explanation underneath as to the impact of the, the two returns on the period and the cash flow. So It was, it was very well done and it was a table.
1: If we want to show differences in the two tables, are we allowed to put like smart art in there and little text boxes just to draw attention to something or is that now not um, proper for the format?
0: I'd be very careful of doing that. Um, I think the danger that you get into, particularly if it's a, a business letter you're writing you know, as an investment manager, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that in, in business. So I think you need to be very careful as to using something like that. Just your brother or something? Then yes, okay, fine. But I think be very careful about it from a business letter perspective. Okay, I'm going to do run through question two using the same sort of formats that Ryan used. Um, so just do the facts were pretty straightforward actually. Um, the employer is wanting to change as a pension fund. He suggests that he moves from an inclusive. Um, From an exclusive charge, should I say, so currently he's paying for everything separately to an all inclusive and actually higher pension fund contribution than he's currently paying. Um, They actually give you, like we gave you the first slide, the presentation overview, so that was actually given. um, So that was your, your, you should know exactly then what you need to cover. If you do not have slides on each of the points that was in the presentation overview, you weren't going to pass. Um, we'd given you the first slide, so make sure you cover all of those things. We actually gave the trends, um, and there were a number of them, so there was uh, I'll go through some of the detail of that. And we gave the current statistics of the fund, so we actually said how many members, what's the percent of male, female, what's the average age, um, all of that stuff was in the, the question itself. The instructions um, were firstly that you needed to draw a presentation to the trustees. As I said, the first slide was given, so the outline was there, it was given to you. Um, you knew what you had to actually cover. And those were the five things that we expected. So, you need to explain the current situation, talk about the relevant trends, um, possible developments because there was a situation where potentially the company was going to buy another company and therefore add a group of new members. There was a proposal made by the employers that was specifically what you needed to cover was the the proposal for moving from exclusive to all-inclusive, the contribution rate, and then it said advantages and disadvantages, so you needed to explain the advantages and disadvantages of the proposal. So that was pretty straightforward, you didn't have to guess what you needed to include from a content point of view, we actually had directed you. I reckon probably 20% of candidates did not cover all of those things. I don't know how you could think you could get away with not covering them if your first slide was this. Um, but incredibly, a good number of people didn't cover them all. Um, so really, not, not great um, from that perspective. So what went wrong? Um, the first problem that went wrong with many people, as I said, I think it was at least 10% of people can't add up 5%, 25 and 0.8%. Uh, that does come to 83 um, a number of people managed to get to 8.8, I don't know how, but um, and it wasn't one, um, unfortunately. So uh, there's an example of how people just don't get uh, marks because of making a stupid mistake. The second big issue was that of trends. Um, it seems that many people don't know how to calculate a trend. So firstly we asked people to cover trends, there were actually six trends, most people did not cover six trends. There was the trend of average age, there was the trend of the number of members, the percent of females, the total expenses, the risk cost and the admin cost. All of those were actually trends. Many people probably only covered the average age, the number of members and the percent of females. So that was quite common that people only covered three of the six trends and lost a lot of marks because they didn't cover all of the trends. Uh, The others were actually also clearly trends. So that's, that, that was the, the first thing. The second thing is the trends were actually given. So, um, for instance, in the case of members, it said there were 450 members uh, five years ago. There are 300 members today. How many members will there be in five years' time if the trend continues? That's a question for you. Everybody's sitting thinking, now there's a trick to this. anybody how many people want to say 150 the trend is actually the line between 450 and 300 um, that's actually a decline in membership of how much as a percentage one-third so one-third members will decline in the next five years one-third of 300 is 100 um, you'll be left with 200 members a huge number of people don't know how to calculate trends in the Actuarial Society's uh, communication exam. So actually most people took the trends and just said average age 35, now 39, five years time what will the average age be? Not 44, um, it's 39 over 35 times by 39. So. That's the way you calculate a trend. From 62 to 63 to 52, that's 11% off. People just took another 11% off. No, that's not a trend. It is a particular type of trend, but if you want to really use that, you have to actually state that this is why I calculated my trend. Um, so please, um, the number of people that didn't calculate that correct was a significant number. I would have hoped better from most people from a trends perspective. So that was a, a significant problem. We didn't fail people for that because if I had, there would be a lot more people in this room. Um, so, but it definitely didn't help if you were a marginal candidate and didn't get the trends right. So it, it definitely lost marks for many people. I would reckon 50% of people at least didn't calculate the trends correctly, maybe even more um the second um, well the second of the third things that were asked was you were asked to talk about the proposed development of the call center there was a membership impact of 200 members joining um, at a particular time in the future and that would have impacted the costs of the risks in particular because they were mainly predominantly females. So you actually needed to say the question clearly said talk about the proposed development you needed to just give the facts back you're going to add 200 members on potentially on this date and the impact will be, on the risk um, and no very few people got that I um, I mean as I said a lot of people actually just didn't even talk about it and um, and then we asked about the, the proposed contribution change again you need to just state the numbers so if you stated the numbers of the current situation which is just regurgitating uh, the question into the presentation you got I think it was four or six marks and um, just for putting the current um, situation in and the proposed new situation that 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 alone just got you a um, significant number of marks. And then we asked for the advantages and disadvantages. A lot of people gave the advantages for only one side of the equation. There are adv- advantages and disadvantages for pl- in the employer and for the employees. It's actually both sides. So a lot of people then just recorded and said, well, the advantage for the employer is A, B, and C, and didn't say anything about the employees. You actually needed to, and actually in, in, in this situation, What the advantages were for the employer were disadvantages for the employee. It was exactly the other side of the the coin. So um, you'll see if you look at the model solution, you'll actually see the model solution just says, um, the advantages, gives the advantages to the employer, and then it says all of these are disadvantages for the employees. Um, And that would have been good enough. Many people didn't even remark on the fact that there was uh, an employer involved as well. So that's uh, the comments. It was a pretty straightforward question. The presentation I would say would be, uh, you will probably find that there's normally one question that's slightly harder and one that's slightly easier. Um, For me this year, the presentation in my view was relatively easy. Um, Most people should have done very well on it. Uh, And the letter was probably harder because there was more facts and stuff that you needed to pull out and getting the tone right and the the discussion and the, the explanations. Um, so the average marks were probably about 10% different between the letter and the and the presentation um, But you you know you really should have you would have expected that most people would have done very well on the presentation If you messed up on the presentation there was very little chance of you passing I would think So that's the other thing that happens is if you do do badly on the easy question um, It's not easy to pass the exam Has anybody got any questions? Or other comments that they would like to ask we've covered everything that we wanted to cover Um, and you have our attention for however much longer you wanted
1: and i just wanted to know something interesting is it possible to pass one question and fail the other and pass overall
0: yes um so you can pass one question fail the other question and pass overall um, as I said, we're effectively marking from four different aspects. So Each question gets marked uh, on a communication and each question gets marked by a technical actuary. Um, it's possible that you could pass uh, for the communications and fail for the actuary, actuarial stuff and pass as well. That's also possible. Um, and it's also possible, it, it, it's very unlikely that you will fail the communication and pass on the actuarial. Um, uh, it doesn't generally happen if you don't pass the communication, you probably don't pass so it's that that's a general rule, but you can pass one question and fail the other one it hel- helps though if you pass both rather don't aim for passing one and failing the other
1: on average what's the percentage mark that you would have to get on a question to? to be a clear pass?
0: 100%. Um, we don't uh, publish the pass marks, as you know. Um, I would say you should be aiming for 60% um, as a general rule. So if you're going get to get less than that, you're putting yourself into jeopardy. If you put, get more than that, you probably will be safe. But uh, that's what you should be aiming for. I wouldn't want to go less than 60 Any other questions? Ryan and I will be here for a bit still, so if you get us before we leave, um, you're welcome to come if you're too shy to ask in the group question in the group, we'll be more than happy to ask to you personally. Um, if you have anything else, you're welcome also to send an email to the Actuarial Society and one of us will reply in writing to you if you, if you want it as well, if you really don't want to face me face to face. Thank you for coming. I hope you found it useful. Um, we hope that you pass so we don't have to remark your papers again next sitting. Thanks very much.